Welcome to Bestech, the public procurement podcast. Today, Marta and I are discussing equal pay standards in public procurement and PhD courses. Welcome to Bestech, the public procurement podcast. In this podcast, Dr. Willem Janssen and Dr. Marta Andorf discuss public procurement law issues, their love of food, and academic life. In each episode, Willem, Marta, and their guests search for answers to intriguing public procurement questions. This is Bestech. Let's dish up public procurement law. Hello. Hi. (laughs) Finally, we get to speak again. Yes. Well, we've been speaking quite often recently, but um, finally we're managing to actually record this episode. Exactly. Because, I mean, for those of you that were waiting for the next episode, We've tried to record a couple of times, but failed miserably. But um, hopefully, this uh, this all works out because um, I'm very excited to uh, to talk to you a bit about your research that is coming out in August in the Nordic Journal of, of um, European Law, um, and an article that you wrote together with the Bergtor Bergson. Um, it's a, as we say in Dutch, a mouthful. Um, equal pay, EU public procurement law, and the free movement of services in the internal market: a case study of mandatory Icelandic. IST 85 standard. Um, so before we delve into that, um, we decided we'd give a little bit of a shout out to some of our, uh, what do you say, loyal listeners? Is that something yes, we could say? Yes, absolutely. Some some great uh, people that help us share the knowledge and the information about this podcast that we really appreciate. So we've got three, right? So we, we went through some of the people that have been so kind to share episodes, that have been so kind to comment or discuss things. And for today, um, today's shout out, we wanted to just mention Hildur Georg's daughter, Eric Plus, and Adam Gromnija, if I say that correctly. Gromnija. Gromnija. Close, yeah. close well, enough. Yeah. <laughs> together we'll figure it out, right? I was doing Dutch, Icelandic, and a bit of Slovak, right? Czech, actually. Uh, Check. Yeah. <laughs> Jeez, learning, learning, learning every day. Um, uh, so thank you so much for, for anyone that's been listening, particularly those three for today. But uh, I'm sure we will be able to mention some more in the future. Um, so for today's episode, we'll be looking at equal pay standards in public procurement. And for dessert, we'll be uh, discussing PhD courses, right? What are the courses that we, what are our own experiences with doing a PhD and the courses that we took at the time, um, what inspired us about them, and um, perhaps also a shout out to two events that are coming up uh, in the future. But before we get to dessert, we first need to go to Maine, clearly. Um, But perhaps we could start at the the beginning um, of of, of the research that you did. Um, And I think that starts with explaining what we're going to call IST 85, maybe it's East 85, mm-hmm. um, but uh, it's it's a piece of legislation from Iceland. Yes, it is. So I think actually, if you if you allow me, I would just want to, in a couple of words, give a context to how this piece of research came to life, because I think it showcased two really interesting aspects. One, um, my co-author used to be my student, uh, my master's student, right now a fantastic legal counsel um, up here in Copenhagen in the LA Piper. Very talented. So this this been, you know, from, from again, our academic um, starting point, uh, very fruitful and very um, rewarding process to work with your student, to see how someone really got interested in your research area. 
So that's the one thing. But a second thing, the way how this started is another fantastic colleague um, from Iceland, um, Dagmar Sigurdottir. It's always very difficult with the Icelandic There's names. There's always a daughter there, right? Yes. Always fine. Yes. Um, Dagmar used to work in Rikiskup, uh, which was the or which is still the central purchasing body in Iceland. And I had a um, chance of visiting them and doing some um, some presentations, some training uh, for for them. And we started to discuss this at that time that this new standard became mandatory and they were rolling out uh, this new legislation to apply in whole Iceland. And the question that up there was um, of, of, of an issue is whether, well, can we apply it within public procurement? Uh, is that even allowed? Will that fit? And, and people were very confused and people were very stressed whether, you know, this is, this is where where sort of research, societal impact, and really practice um, merge all together. So after all emotions, this, emotions are a very good motivator for research, aren't they? I think, and I also thought that, you know, this was a really great situation in which I was hoping to do a type of work that hopefully can be helpful to uh, those working in practice. So, um, so have a real applicability of a research, right? So that's that's the context of this. Now, in a couple of words, what we're actually talking about, the standard that uh, Willem mentioned, this IST 85, this is a standard of Icelandic equal pay that has been introduced in Iceland in 2012. Um, and the purpose of that, of course, was to close the gender pay gap. But what became very interesting um, legislative go at some point was that the Icelandic government passed the law ultimately stipulating that from the 1st January 2018, so good three years ago now, this specific equal pay standard will become, right now it's already is, but in the past will become mandatory for all companies with 25 or more employees operating on the Icelandic market. Since then, this is also interesting, I think the law has been repealed and replaced with the newest version coming in January 2021 because there are some uh, hurdles along the way. So that standard, um, I think, very clearly shows um, some type of um, practices that we can observe broadly, right, with a new, more pro-sustainable uh, market ambitions when we're starting to use more extensively a and voluntary um, certifications, voluntary standards, and we apply them also in public procurement. And the question whether and to what extent we can actually suddenly um, start to mandate them and what challenges this brings along the way. And also this type of standard in place, it, nothing, it, it had nothing to do with public procurement. When it was designed or when the legislation was passed on, it was to be applicable towards everything. And then the question was just, well, if this becomes a mandatory law of the land, to what extent we also apply it uh, within uh, public procurement? So that's how, how the type of legislative process looked like and what was the ambitions be, behind, behind uh, this standard. So what was the what was in the end the the reason that they they ended up making this link with public procurement because one could also argue well if it if it's a law that applies in the land 
why do we even need to to uh, we can install different enforcement methods right we could do auditing we could check it via supervisory authority why why did they end up making this link with public procurement in the end well i think that it's similarly as with many other if those are social and environmental consideration, that is a matter of policy, it's a matter of strategy, and it's more and more the type of approach of all hands of deck on deck, which I often refer to specifically in context of climate change, right? That it's, it's not to say that public procurement is the tool to use to actually enforce this, but it's one of the tools. And the question is, well, why wouldn't we use it? Of course, um, the criticism towards that can be, well, it, it's not fitting, right? It's sort of just trying to fit a square to a whole peg, right? And, and that may not be uh, the, the, the best option. Um, and that's the reason that um, the standard has been not applied in all procurements, but the, the beginning question was whether we can and to what extent we cannot um, raise a question of whether you have that. So it's a matter of also, I think, ensuring equal pay within public sector um, as, as, an, as an importance. And of course, in public sector also has um, this possibility of enforcing it through motivating uh, the market, right? We're going back to the role of a state here, whether we can also talk about contracting authorities as creators of the markets or to nudge the market to to do the right thing, so to speak. That's an interesting point. And I think for the for the listeners that have already listened to previous episodes, maybe I can do a little shout out to to this move towards mandatory requirements or and I think this is a great case study as you refer to it in your article as well. Um, should you um, have gotten, should your interest have been sparked? Let's put it this way. <laughs> and maybe you can, I don't know if we can suggest people to stop listening now and tune into other episodes, but perhaps afterwards it might be nice to listen to episode eight of, of uh, Bistec, the Public Procurement Podcast about the Tim case and Article 18, which you also briefly refer to in uh, in your in your research, or uh, Article th- or article or episode three on the Green Deal and movements towards male mandatory requirements, or lastly, of what Marta and I think is our best episode yet, but we'll let you decide if that's really true, is um, is number 11 on the role of courts in relation to, to these such requirements. Um, that gives you a good, I would say, three hours <laughs> of listening time before you can come back to this episode, but we'll let you, you decide if you actually do that. Um, so coming back to, to your introduction... You briefly explained what uh, what IST eighty five uh, what it what it does what the background is, um, and I think what's interesting is you mentioned that that it it wasn't meant to be a mandatory law but became a mandatory law. This is also something that we've seen in the Netherlands with the proportionality guide, a guide in public procurement stipulating each step of the way of the public procurement process of what the proportionality principle requires of contracting authorities. Um, and then Parliament looked at it and thought, that's a great guide. We'll make it obligatory. Um, and I think th- that's been a very positive step, but it can also be, um, and just a side note, this is the only ever published law in the Netherlands that has color schemes. So everything's black and white, but public proc- procurement holds this, well, allegedly questionable honor uh, of having the only published, because it wasn't meant to be a law, right? It was meant to be just a guide. Um, so there's a bit of color in public procurement as well, or at least in the Netherlands. Um, 
but going back to that, um, and, and I think um, if I may summarize, and please correct me if I'm wrong, is like this, 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 this crossroads of different fields of law, that's where it becomes interesting, right? Equal pay law, EU public procurement law, and the free movement, uh, free movement law um, it becomes very prevalent because it was made mandatory, right? Perhaps something that wasn't meant to be mandatory all of a sudden became mandatory. Yeah, and you know, I think uh, this is a specific case study on very specific type of social law, if we're thinking, again, within the framework of sustainable public procurement, equal pay, very, very kind of narrow. But I think that what I really like about working on this piece was, as you mentioned, it was case study that could be replicated and showcase the challenges, the risk, the red flags with... Um, all different uh, types of rights, uh, because I think some issues will be similar. What has been particularly problematic in context of, of what you mentioned is voluntary towards mandatory in context of this Icelandic standard was also the fact that who holds the copyright to the um, to the standard is actually this organization called Icelandic Standards which is not unanimous by no means within government, right? So also who developed it, who holds the copyright, who has the right to amend it ultimately, is another organization. And they also throughout the legislative process actually uh, complain saying that they've been not asked to uh, comment and contribute to making this standard mandatory. There was at some point also a criticism towards the fact that standard was... Um, to be paid for, and the, the payment for the standard was expensive. Later on, the whole implementation, rolling out your processes within your company to actually be able to um, obtain the standards were very um, expensive and longsome in time. So there has been a lot of criticism with uh, with with uh, introduction of that. But of course, I think this is also to be understood if you're starting to make such a change, it will take time. Um, if you look in a couple of years, I think that it will be considered much more positively. Uh, and not to mention also that this, um, to going to bring it back again a little bit to um, public procurement, problematic for SMEs, right? Uh, and the SMEs that are kind of on a border because up here we're talking 25 plus employees, right? So mm -hmm. those ones that are 25, 26, those will be the ones that will be struggling a little bit. Um, but um, but the government uh, issued a guidelines and help to how to how to go to this process. But if we look at the broader picture to what you already uh, alluded to, uh, Willem, well, just as a disclaimer, I won't go within our podcast today. This, but Iceland, of course, is is particular because it's EEA country, it's not member state of EU. So part of the article does this whole um, analysis of how EU, uh, in other words, can we draw on the experience of Icelanders? Um, yeah. and, the, and the conclusion that is yes, yes, that actually very often the particularly European Court of Justice cases are being referred to in the judgments of EEA court and so on and so forth. There are differences. And um, the EFTA court sometimes decides differently than the European Court of Justice. But as a mere generalization, us drawing upon the uh, experiences in Iceland is not uh, very far-fetched. There is a good point of saying that, that the practices can be analyzed in light of EU law. And then when we're looking specifically on and if that is the IST 85 standard or if there's any other equal pay standards, well, what you will do, well, you need to analyze it against um, 
couple uh, different aspects when it comes to EU law, right? First and foremost, you need to analyze it against the um, primary law, against the treaties, making sure that this is not a restriction to trade or a measure having equivalent effect to the restrictions. What that ultimately means is that whether the tool that you want to apply, whether the legislative measure that you want to set in place is not making it more difficult for the providers from uh, other European countries, um, is not making it more difficult for them to actually participate in your market, right? This whole notion of open internal market. And up here, of course, the question um, or the comment could be easily seen that, well, this could be quite problematic if you suddenly need to roll out uh, this whole big process of ensuring equal pay within your within your companies. Now, this is when this became very passionate project for me because as a woman, also you know, when I was doing that analysis, it, it, it struck me at some point that well, we cannot say that EU law is actually reason why you cannot ask for equal pay. It doesn't make much sense, does it? But when this became um, also uh, really clear is. What happens very often, I think, within EU law is that you have different pockets of law uh, that are regulated on EU level that develop independently and are not anyhow um, speaking to each other, right? So up here, the whole internal market rules and provisions and legislation. On the other hand side, you have the human rights, the environmental law, the social law, equal pay here being, uh, being another example. Because we have equal pay law actually within EU uh, treaties, within the EU directives. It is something that is regulated. It is something that actually calls for, um, for um, ensuring that right being enforced. However, where the challenge here occurs is ultimately by what means you do that, right? Because equally as the procurement directives, the equal pay are regulated by directives, which means that they bind you to the effect, but they do not bind you to the process, how you're going to reach it, right? That is left to the discretion of member states. So up here, the challenge would be if we would want to um, consider the lens of the Icelandic equal pay standard of saying, well, to give you an example, let's say Germany com German company would bid in the Icelandic tender. And the German company would say, well, but we have equal pay law within our country. I obey by it. We meet that. We don't need to obtain that uh, standard. And then, of course, here you're getting into the conversation about mutual recognition, another um, big European principle, um, et cetera, et cetera. So to what extent you can impose that. And, and, and the final element here is, of course, um, that more specifically um, on issues of justification. So if we, and I think this is what we speculating within our analysis, is that if from uh, whatever reason the principle of mutual recognition is not respected or applied in context of the Icelandic standard, well, then most presumably that might be a restriction or trade or the measure have an equivalent effect. And then you need to look at the justification because when you arrive at that point, it's not to say you cannot have it. Then you need to look, okay, can you use any of the justifications? And the justifications that we have um, available are the public policy, public security, or public health, uh, though that list ultimately is not um, exhaustive. 
And the three-step justification ultimately was uh, laid in the uh, Van Bingersen case. And it ultimately point out, because we're talking also about services, I probably should underline that, that for that case study that we did for Iceland, we look specifically in the context, if you want to provide services in Iceland. Um, and in that uh, sense, uh, what you need to prove if you want to use justification as Iceland to, to having this type of equal pay um, standard is that the standard needs to uh, needs to have a due legitimate interest, so pursue a due legitimate interest. It needs to be equally applicable to persons established within the state, non-discriminatory and proportionate. Now, I wouldn't want to give you all the details of the article because I would still hope that um, maybe at it least just, one person will read the article. <laughs> this whole episode, one nudge toward the, towards the Nordic Journal of European Law, Marta. Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> totally. Just please come I in. Just have this. <laughs> this is, I do not agree with this. I didn't know this was going to happen. I'm tuning out. <laughs> no, sorry, to, sorry, but sorry to interrupt. Let me just briefly yes. and then please, please continue. Yes. So basically the question here is, are we, I think step one, is this a, a limitation of free movement uh, law, particularly free movement of services? Yes. Then if we conclude that, yeah. Mm -hmm. If it is a, a, a limitation, we then enter the sphere of justifications. Now we have some codified ones that you mentioned, and then we have the rule of reason as well, because it's a Dijon uh, case that it, it, it relates to. And then, of course, in many cases, you can find this legitimate reason why you should why you should be able to justify it. Right? That's generally not the obstacle obstacle no. in most free movement law cases. It's mostly the the question of proportionality that Absolutely. is uh, that could be uh, could be of issue. Um, and the question then is like, um, um, and, and because maybe sketching an alternative scenario, you are allowed within EU law to have stricter standards for your national, uh, uh, for your own entities, right? Yes. The Gebhard case where you could say yeah, reverse discrimination is allowed. You can have higher standards than what the EU, EU um, uh, obliges you to uphold. Um, and the fact that uh, a foreign entities can't be held to that standard. That's your own. That is actually a, one of the aspects of sovereignty, right? We you still can we only bind our, ourselves to EU laws uh, to to the extent that we've agreed upon, right? But as a national state, you can go further. Same with sustainability standards. Um, but uh, clearly, in your article, you're not delving into to reverse standards. You're really looking at the case, which I think is also the most interesting one. Is it say this? I think it was a German tender that you wanted to to, to yeah. have moved to to Iceland. Um, it's a shame you didn't choose the, a Dutch, but we can go Dutch with the tender, Dutch. Not a problem. <laughs> <laughs> you know, no, because the reason the reason why well, the, the German, from whatever reason, came to my mind because at some point we started to think, okay, let's let's try to look how that would look in practice, right? So, depending what it is that you want to do as a tenderer in public procurement, it could be a construction. Um, contract that you're coming in and provide services um, somehow services connected with the construction and that can be long term but it can also be a fairly short period of time right that you can come and, and provide some services is would it be different if you're coming back regularly but you're always under one year etc etc so there's all this different element but another aspect here that was very problematic, I think very problematic also from the angle specifically of public procurement is exactly the proportionality that you 
that you mentioned. Because when we went through all the others, the due legitimate interest, we assumed that there's no problem here because the equal pay actually has been part of EU treaties from the very beginning, already from Treaty of Rome. So that's, that is ultimately, you know, one of principles, goals, and the very strong provision within the EU law. So we didn't thought that this would be problematic here. Equally applicable, um, non-discriminatory, it's applicable to everyone that operates on Icelandic market, never mind if you're foreign or if you're domestic, right? So um, we thought that, again, up here, there's not really an issue as such. But when we were struggling a little bit was this notion of proportionality. And the notion of proportionality here can be actually analyzed on two levels. One is the general EU law. And then another one, uh, if you if if you um, going to even arrive at the conclusion that yes, then the another proportionality sort of test that you apply is ultimately within public procurement also, right? And up here, actually, something that oh, I also was considering and thinking about was the read your post because read your post um, something that some of the commentators to read your post case. Um, for those of our listeners, uh, the, this case may sound not particularly familiar. It was the case about uh, minimum wage and obliging the tenderers to pay a minimum wage. And the issue was whether we are not taking the competitive advantage of bidders that ultimately are from other countries. Uh, and on those other countries, the minimum wage is of a lower level. But up there, what happened was that the court ultimately jumped straight away to secondary law interpretation, and they did not look at the general principle um, of proportionality, and that has been um, criticized on on, on on couple occasions. The counter-argument to that is that if it is already regulated within the secondary legislation, that um, the assumption of that would be that, yes, that it um, you, you, you conduct the proportionality test only under the secondary um, law here. Um, but we struggle with that, and I think that I would want to be very clear and open and honest about it, uh, because what the main problem of proportionality with all of this is that how the standard is um, designed is to say that you need to ensure the equal pay processes and ensure it within all your company, all your company, right? So we're going again back to parallelly compare it with the whole notion of CSR in public procurement. So... We are not saying, if we're thinking right now in the in the bracket of public procurement specifically, you need to ensure that whoever is going to work on that public contract that you're tendering for will have equal pay, but all your company needs to um, have this, right? So this is going outside of procurement contract, outside of procurement um, process uh, and procurement scenario. And that very clearly on that level would seem up unproportionate, potentially. Right. So then we started to look at it. Well, how we can, what could be interpretation of this law in line that this actually is okay to, to, to do. And actually, um, where the help came was through these, um, update of the mandatory law on IST 85 that, uh, came into power from 1st January 2021. Because up there, they acknowledge that there is a challenge, particularly for new companies entering market, right? So if you have a new company or if you have a change of circumstances, suddenly, let's say you're a startup or you're SME, and suddenly you tip that scale of 25 plus employees. 
then the um, obligation kicks in, but this is quite burdensome. So how that can be done? And the new updated legislation on that, the law says that you have up to three years to roll in your processes and obtain that standard. And actually we use that as a leverage to understand the proportionality within this, right? And we said, well, if you're foreign uh, bidder and you um, and you partake in in uh, tenders, well, you will have those three ultimately scenarios that will allow you to potentially um, potentially um, deal with it. So if you under one year, no, no one can ask you for um, that standard. If you reoccurring on the Icelandic market, um, and if you need to. Co- um, calculate and sum all those uh, presents in this landing market and it is above three years, then in our opinion, you would need to obtain the requirement of you obtaining the the uh, standard is valid. And then the third one is that if you are just continuously on the market above the three, that is also. But that, that comment that I'm making right now, I just want to make crystal clear that that's general EU law and we're not strictly sitting within the tender as such within the tender as such then that's a little bit more complicated due to this csr like requirement right yeah and also i I suppose it because i think that the proportionality is the tricky bit as we already said Mm. um like the, the question is is this i think more on a fundamental level is it necessary to reach the goal of to to fix the local uh gender pay gap in iceland right Mm. What's the relevance to to include these these German uh, applicants? Or oh, I, sh- I should have said Dutch, but anyways, you, you get <laughs> all you get the others, point. all the others <laughs> that are not Icelandic. Uh, yeah, this is weird. I find that the Netherlands has this big brother syndrome with mm. the, uh, with with Germany, and the Germans don't really care about the Netherlands. <laughs> but um, <laughs> that's more our issue than theirs, I think. So, but I think that's that's one, and I think I also find the three years a bit. Um, I, I mean, it's 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 ambiguous, right? Or it's at least ambivalent. Why why three years then? Why not? I mean, I, I get it. it. It's more than one and less yeah. than five, I suppose. Mm. Um, but it does make it a bit. Um, I feel like it's kind of. Um, and I'm, I'm, this is the second Dutch uh, proverb that I want to use, but it's like mopping with the tap open a little bit. But you're kind of trying to fix or trying to, you, you, maybe the legislator, but perhaps you you found some some proof of that. Maybe the legislator also felt there was a kind of a, a need for balancing or in terms of proportionality to soften the blow for these uh, foreign bidders. We didn't come across anything specifically about the notion of proportionality. Actually, well, we were very surprised when we were conducting this uh, research and uh, my co-author, he is Icelandic, so I had the the great chance of having someone who could read through a lot of the the local documentation. And we conducted some interviews with some people uh, to get the background. But what is interesting is that all, in all the documentation, there is a reference to uh, EU equal pay law, to ILO conventions and all these different things. But at any point, there's actually no reference to internal market and all this sort of free movement of providing services, goods, etc., etc. So that was quite interesting for us. But I think that three years have been um, have been chosen on the basis of the of the primary experiences, because if you look at the timeline of which companies needed to implement that uh, first, those were the largest companies. And um, the experience on how long it takes 
also um, how financially burdensome that is. So on the basis of doing this equation, that's how the three years have been have been chosen. Yeah. But then just if you let me, I would just want to wrap up quickly to point out couple elements more specifically in public procurement. Because like I'm saying, I think that all this article, it's actually a lot of it has to do with conducting this primary legal analysis on general EU law, the fundamentals, um, to something that started as a very typical procurement question. But within procurement, um, what is relevant, I think, is, is, is couplefold. First is this element of what I mentioned, that how the standard is structured is that you, they ask you to, um, they ask you to uh, obtain it for whole company. So it's broader than procurement, and that in itself is problematic. As a counterweight to that, I think uh, interesting is to look on the requirements of Article 18.2 that you mentioned earlier on, and, and we dive into it a little bit more in our previous episode. So this notion, well, if this became a mandatory law of the land, you need to obey by it. And to what extent and what are the consequences of that? And that is this continuous uh, conversation, right? And we don't really... Uh, seem uh, to have a very clear boundaries where this becomes quite problematic and unproportionate and whether it's like, well, this is a standard because this is a mandatory law. You want to conduct business in our land. This is what you need to do, right? And um, and then, of course, um, the main issue, um, what, we, what we concluded with is that the obtaining of this standard can be can be ultimately used as a proof of equal law compliance, right? So we're looking at how you use also labels and standards, right? So you're saying what needs to be uh, obeyed by, what needs to be required, but then uh, if you have the standard, great, you use it as a means of proof, but there are also other possibilities for you as a foreign bidder to prove um, that you obtain by that. And ultimately, also in context of procurement, um, we said, well, um, the only way that you can use it, we believe, is that you specifically limit it to uh, what the procurement contract is, right? So you're saying whoever is going to perform that needs to uh, ensure the equal pay within the staff members within the contract, that that element is upheld. And then you can use the equal pay standard, the Icelandic equal pay standard, as a means of proofs. Uh, means of proof, but you can use also equivalent ones, right? And I, of course, um, skip through some elements to it because we don't have time. Uh, and at the same time, I really would hope that um, some Hilder, I'm actually uh, pointing that to you. I'm hoping that that can be particularly interesting uh, for you and some of our other colleagues. All right. Thank you for the for the wrap up and the final points. Um, I, I other people couldn't see that I was signaling you that we needed to go to dessert. <laughs> so um, we're thinking of including some clinging glasses from uh, the episodes onwards. But f if you can imagine just some glasses clinging, we're about to go to the dessert. So thank you for the uh, for the introduction to your article, uh, Marta. Um, I'm totally on board and I'm just going to do a total nudge. Just grab the August issue of, of the Nordic Journal of European Law and please comment uh, on LinkedIn or Twitter on, uh, on Marta's research. Um, so dessert... Uh, I already mentioned it, uh, PhD courses. So we'll take a couple more minutes to reflect briefly on that. Um, our little nerdy academic session, as we as we call it amongst ourselves. Um, 
So I thought it would be good to just briefly start with our own experiences. Um, and what's interesting is when you say PhD courses in a lot of countries whilst doing a PhD, you need to achieve a certain amount of points, uh, credit uh, of being able to uh, to actually start writing. So of course you'll do the research on the side, but you need it in order to be able to defend. Um, <clears throat> so if I reflect on the Netherlands, at most law schools that doesn't exist. We do have a cooperation between various universities at Utrecht in which there's a joint uh, program and training program for doctoral researchers, including methodology sessions, presentations, master classes. So we kind of have structured it a bit, but there's no specific requirements in the, in the Netherlands. Uh, but I'm not sure if that's different in Denmark. Um, to, if I understand you correctly, I think there are some similarities and maybe some differences. We also have a specific amount of ETTS points that throughout the three years of your PhD uh, contract, you need to accumulate. Uh, you don't have kind of specifics on when exactly, it's up to you, but there is a specific amount of those points. And we have a couple courses that are mandatory, that are organized by our law school, things like methodology, academic writing. It's a combination, you know, between this soft research skill, soft skills and research skills, and the research fundamentals. And then a um, large majority of those points is left to discretion of the PhD student because or you can decide to go to PhD course, let's say at Utrecht, or maybe there's some really interesting um, conference, let's say in Nottingham, where you can submit a paper, you can present a paper, and on that basis there is a specific mathematical calculation that gives you some points. So it's a combination of a couple of different things, but it's for sure perceived as a quite important element of your PhD education. All right. Um, it's amazing. We we get four years generally to do a PhD. Maybe we're just yeah. slow in the Netherlands. No, I think that is many um, countries. I think Sweden has five. Is that correct? Or oh, four? Thank God. Yeah, there They're is. You countries. know, <laughs> there is a var uh, variety of that throughout the countries, right? Um, so, what I always like hearing, particularly from you as well, um, is. Every PhD track is different, and everyone has a different piece of baggage in terms of what they need to be able to successfully complete the PhD, right? So we can't really share best practices, but perhaps you could share what inspired you or what courses really helped you and why you perhaps chose to do them or I don't know, I'm looking for certain, I'm looking for inspiration, Marta. Sure. Um, this is a bit <laughs> difficult. I think, you know, I think what comes, I, th I think today our colleagues and particularly our young colleagues that maybe are within procurement area are in a bit better situation. Uh, at the time where I started my PhD, that was 2010, um, I felt at that time there was not that much specifically within procurement. And it took me a second to realize that there are uh, centers such as Nottingham at that time. And I remember going to their PhD um, conference for me was fantastic because that was the first moment that I really realized, wow, I'm not alone, there are other people. And when I talk about those things, other people are also getting excited. So I remember that one very fondly, uh, specifically for the perspective of uh, networking, meeting other people, sharing experiences, and so on and so forth. Um, I think from perspective of years as being slightly older and reflecting back these days, you know, what, what I find relevant and what I come back still today is all the courses on methodology. Though 
what I need to also say that I've been uh, present in several of them, and the problem is that they that they kind of dry. So it's 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 a particular skill, <laughs> yeah, yeah? Sure. To, to how you do the methodology, particularly for the young academics, in a way that they really realize how important that is, how relevant that is, and in an interesting way. But I think that. The methodologies are quite important. And then when I was doing part of my research stay, um, part of my PhD in Australia, they had all this training um, for PhDs. And it was nothing to do with research so much, but it was soft skills. It was, you know, how you plan your day, how you approach your PhD in a project management type of way. Um, the whole free writing and different sort of... Uh, strategies on how you write, when you write, how you think about it. I think processes very much. And I thought that that really helped me uh, because that that kind of gives you a help in how do you carry on this three-year process. What about yourself? Do you have any ones that's particularly stick in your mind as a, as a great experiences? I can really relate to what you said about the um, uh, feeling like you're not the only person on the planet doing public procurement research. Uh, because you generally get nudged into either a comp competition law group or a broader internal market group, that's if you're true. fortunate enough to have that. Um, and, and that's also growing in the Netherlands, right? So at our, at our center, we have about six, seven PhDs walking around now and they can really group together and not, and not feel, uh, perhaps, perhaps they do still feel alone, but at least they can share their frustrations amongst <laughs> yeah. each other. Um, so uh, I did a lot of um, during my PhD, I, I presented a lot. And for me, that worked really well. So when I say like it, it's all very specific, I think one, you kind of need to figure out, you need to learn a lot about yourself and how you would need to manage such a big project. So for me, as a deadline worker, I love just having someone that would get angry if I mm -hmm. would have submitted the paper too late, right? So I would always need that as a, as a, you know, a milestone. And um, those um, master classes for which experts were flown in were help, very helpful for that, um, because it also allows you to kind of that was I, I think along the way when you can have highs and lows, like it, it's nice to have someone reflect on the stuff you're doing, give you positive feedback, also helpful feedback, but kind of to give you a bit of a champagne moment, right? For sure. Sticking with the, with dessert. Um, but also so, on the other end to the champagne moment, if, if you know that there is a particular element, not that is weak about your thesis or your research question, but something that can draw criticism. Because if you get the question or a criticism on a couple of times, but you strongly believe that that's the right thing to do. I had that, you know, uh, with my PhD, I was comparing EU and Australian regulation. And I, on several occasions, got the criticism of, of, of hearing, oh, but you're comparing two things that you shouldn't be comparing. Right, yeah. because it's sort of one country versus our union, which is slightly different, um, and and so on and so forth. But because I got it three, four times, by the time that my defense came in, my answer, you know, I could throw you it off. It. I rocked it absolutely. I definitely <laughs> knew what my answer to that to that is to be. Right, so I think that's very yeah. very helpful. Also, yeah, yeah, it's funny you should say that because I have that as well about Article Four Point Two of the treaty. Um, about self-organization and my link to saying like that's what's relevant for procurement as well. And I, I met up with these scholars that were very concerned about what was going on in Hungary and Poland for good mm. reason. And they said, you're hollowing out EU law, this link shouldn't be made, even though the Court of Justice had made it. But having had this question, which, and it's a valid question. For sure. But it doesn't mean that it, you shouldn't draw the conclusion, right? So uh, to me, that was also very useful. And I find that 
presenting and getting expert feedback was was more useful even even though I agree with what you said about methodology courses mm. it was more useful because you actually you're forced to put your own thinking to paper and to receive even though it's scary as hell to to to, to get feedback on it so for sure um uh, and perhaps also looking at the time um, um what I'm taking from this is is networking opportunities present 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 um methodology courses and perhaps I'm forgetting something but um I'd like to just do a sh- short uh, shout out to your training program the sapiens training program that's coming up um, after the summer perhaps you could provide a bit of an introduction to that in case people would be interested sure so in um three sentences max let's let's try to do that uh sapiens count absolutely count sapiens is something that i did not yet had a chance to uh, plug in during our podcast but if you following our podcast or any social media of mine it's a big um itn um Europe Horizon 2020 program. We have 15 PhDs in sustainable public procurement. Very exciting. As a part of all that, we will be rolling out a different PhD courses and trainings for upcoming three years. And we have a chance to do the first one end of September, beginning of October. So 28 um, September till I believe 1st, 2nd October. And that is on public procurement and sustainability fundamentals for two ETCS um, points and soft skills for early stage researchers so for PhD students for one ECCS point. Um, in general, this is um, addressed to the Sapiens PhDs, but we are also open for external participants. So um, in our podcast website, all the sort of things we will make sure to insert links and I'm very warmly would encourage you to partake great great people um, sharing their experiences and knowledge and in the same line of great upcoming courses in area of public procurement <laughs> I will this is getting way too obvious Mike. we need to work on our subtleness I'm going um, to ping pong back to make note. yeah I, I, I looked at the program and it looks it looks great but uh, you did use more than three sentences I to did. introduce your thing I, I, I counted did. about seven no, but I'll yeah. forgive you for that um so also on the 30th of November we at Utrecht University at the Center for Public Procurement we've got um a, a PhD forum which will hopefully be an annual forum that will organize to support uh, PhDs across the globe um uh, this year's theme is public procurement for societal challenges which is very broad um uh, in, in terms of what uh, what the content can be and it's interdisciplinary so uh, the concept is that you get you, you write a paper, you submit it, um, you get the chance to network amongst other PhDs, but also the experts who are interdisciplinary will look at your paper, meaning that you'll get one viewpoint or feedback from a, a, a scholar that's in your field, but also from one that is uh, not in your field, because we think that that could be very useful, um, at, at least to further your research um, and to perhaps get viewpoints that um, you might not have thought about. Um, whilst uh, construing your research question or actually if you're already further down the track uh, in the writing process with the paper that you would uh, would present. So um, uh, that's happening as well, but it, you know, it'll happen next year as well should this be too, uh, too early. So remember the Sapiens training program in September and perhaps also the um, uh, PhD forum at Utrecht that could be of assistance when we talk about PhD, uh, PhD courses that uh, could help your research. Um, I think this is um, where we need to uh, to wrap it up, Marta. Thank you so much for for chatting again. 
Thanks so much. And, and um, thank you to our listeners. And we warmly encourage you to join in one of those PhD courses if that's something of your interest. It'll be for sure good fun. For sure. This was Vistek, the Public Procurement Podcast. This was Bestech, the Public Procurement Podcast. Do you want to contribute to today's discussion? Then share your thoughts on LinkedIn or Twitter. Do you have an idea for a future episode? Write to us at www.bestechpodcast.com. Thank you.